Okay, so it's a great pleasure today to have uh, Carmen Molina Paris. She's a theoretical physicist by training. who's done a lot of interesting work on uh, quantum gravity, of all things, but a number of years ago, uh, changed her interests dramatically and has been working in um, theoretical immunology and runs a big network in the UK. And uh, it's a pleasure to have her here talking on this today. And uh, we'll hand over to you, Carmen. Well, thank you very much for the invitation and then um, the audience. So what I would uh, be talking to you today is work that I've been doing in collaboration with Ugo Vandenberg, who's actually done, I would say, an incredible transition because his background training is in biology to really be now in an applied maths department. Um, so learning a lot of mathematics. So I think that's much harder than for a theoretical physicist to learn a bit of the immunology. Um, a collaborator, Grant Slyth, my PhD student, Emily Sterk, and, um, and other people that I mentioned at the end. So what I would like to um, tell you today is how is the diversity in T-cell um, lymphocytes maintained? So as probably, how many people have heard the word T-lymphocyte before? Oh, quite, quite a few. So, but the idea is that I will give you a brief immunological background, tell you what I exactly mean by repertoire diversity, set up the mathematical model based on the immunological evidence, give you the results, and then, of course, there's is more to do, far more to do. Um, so what's the background in immunology? So T cells are um, cells that are part of the adaptive immune system, and their history comes from stem cells in the bone marrow that differentiate into something called common lymphoid progenitor. I mean, the names don't matter, but the idea is that from the bone marrow, stem cells um, of the lineage that can generate all the different blood cells uh, differentiate into a different type of cells. Those cells actually migrate out of the bone marrow to move into the thymus, and that's why T cells are called T, T for thymus, versus B cells which are another type of lymphocytes, but they actually stay in the bone marrow, so B for bone marrow. And these um, precursor cells, when they move to the thymus, uh, they have to go a very uh, strict exam. They are examined, so these are cells that will be in charge of detecting um, an infection. So they have receptors, and by these receptors they uh, sense their environment. So these receptors, when they're first expressed um, on these cells, it's exactly in the thymus where they mature to, to become the cells that will do these functions. And they're tested for two things. First of all, that the receptors that they're expressing on their surface are functional. So to see that they are able to do the job that they're supposed to be doing. But if the uh, receptors are doing too good a job in the sense that they can generate autoimmune uh, responses, those cells will be deleted. So only out of the full, sort of the full influx that comes into a thymus, only 5% of those cells survive. So it's quite a strict selection process. And those lucky um, <coughs> thymocytes that mature move into what is called the periphery, the blood flow and any of the other lymph nodes in um, the body. So that, just in case I say that, and of course, please interrupt if anything is uh, not particularly clear. The bone marrow and the thymus are called central lymphoid organs and any of the other lymph nodes in the body are called peripheral lymph nodes. So the maturation and developing happens in the bone marrow and the thymus and when they move to the periphery to actually do their job, 
they are called naive T cells, so cells that have just come out of the thymus and have not seen antigen. Um, and sometimes they're also called mature T cells, so um, lots of confusion. And usually, the part of the immune uh, response that uh, everybody's used to is this idea that you get some pathogen, something foreign, these cells can um, basically react to that, generate an immune response, the cells change, becoming what it's called effector cells that can elicit uh, immune responses. They actually divide very quickly through a process called um, clonal expansion, and when the infection is cleared, all, most of the cells will actually um, die, will they be forced to die, and a few uh, stay as memory cells, sort of the um, rational behind a vaccine program. But what I'll be referring to today is the top part of the periphery diagram. In the absence of infection, when hopefully we're not too um, ill, not uh, exposed to any infections, bacterial or pathogenic or virally, um, cells don't live forever, cells die. And it's essential that we maintain this pool of different T cells. So what I mean, what I haven't said now, but I'll, I'll go into that more later, is that there's evidence that this pool is maintained in a healthy adult individual at a constant size and it has a certain structure in terms of the diversity and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. So what seems to be the evidence is that in order to maintain this pool in a constant um, state, in what is called a homeostatic state, the signaling that delivers slow, round, um, of, um, slow rounds of cell division is maintained by um, self peptides, self-antigens. So I will be talking about that part of the diagram, how in the absence of infection, you maintain a constant diverse pool of, um, of T cells and why it's um, diversity important. So without going into the molecular details of where this diversity comes from, notice that your body doesn't know a priori which, um, which um, pathogenic, um, with pathogens you're going to be exposed to. So it's important to have a diversity of different T cells that can respond to different pathogens um, to stay alive for, for longer. So with this um, immunological background, what is the evidence um, that we have about homeostasis? So to really have a function as a sort of healthy immune system, you must respond to foreign antigens. That's the way um, the system works. And as we cannot predict the nature of these pathogens, we need to have this diversity for whatever we'll be encountering in the future. What it's known about homeostatic regulation of naive T cells, so I'm only going to be talking about naive T cells, the cells that have not encountered antigen. I'm not going to be referring to memory T cells because they're slightly different. And the memory ones, remember, are the ones generated after a primary um, response to um, an infection. So the repertoire of all the T cells consists of a constant number, that is sort of the homeostatic control population, distributed over a large number of different T-cell families called clonotypes. And the evidence is that these T-cells, in, the in the absence of infection, compete for signals that are um, provided by another type of cells, uh, professional cells called antigen-presenting cells, and through this competition for resources, you guarantee coexistence and persistence, which is important, the persistence for how long can you maintain this diversity of the different T-cell chronotypes. And what it seems to happen is that um, when you're an adult, so between 20 and 60, this homeostatic control is well maintained, but as we age, 
not only you lose the size, the size of the pool goes down, but also there's compromised diversity. So there's some nice studies in um, old people, 100 years old, I think that's, uh, you know, would all be very happy if we lived out that long, um, healthy. <laughs> so that there's T-cell chronotype extinction, so they respond much worse to, um, to vaccines, their antibody production also goes down. Um, so, so all these things are important. So um, basically what I will do today is based on this evidence, build the model. So um, the little bit of immunology that um, I think it's good to have to see how these cells interact is that, as I've mentioned, we have two types of cells. The cells that we're looking at, T cells, but the T cells cannot generate an immune response or even um, divide unless they interact through their uh, surface receptors with antigen presenting cells. So these cells are professional cells. Their job is to present antigens and they do it by um, expressing on their surface or displaying on their surface an MHC molecule and MHC stands for major histocompatibility complex. And if you haven't heard about it before, don't worry too much, but just remember that this is the molecule that is linked to um, tissue rejection, for example. So um, the fact that T cells can only perform their duty by this MHC molecule implies that uh, if you're going to have a transplant, you have to be MHC compatible, but I'm, I'm not talking about it today. So the idea is that you have this wide array of different peptides that are displayed on top of these um, MHC molecules. And the picture I'll be referring in this talk is the top one, where all, all the peptides come from your own proteins and if you're infected what happens is that a few of the peptides will come from um, viral proteins or bacterial proteins but all that is always seen in a sea of self-peptides. So um, remember that antigen presenting cells or APC for short display on their surface MHC molecule plus peptide and this is the um, ligand that combines to the T-cell receptor and I will denote by PMHC this complex formed by peptide with MHC and as cells change what they're displaying on their surface sometimes I won't talk about an antigen presenting cell but an antigen presentation profile to say what is that cell presenting at a given time because two different cells might be presenting the same profiles um, at a given time. Um, for T cells the situation is different so the T cell can be characterized by the receptor that it's displayed on its surface and it's called a T-cell receptor or TCR for short and it expresses, a T-cell expresses multiple copies um, of the order of uh, 30,000 um, copies of this um, same molecule. So you can classify T-cells by the type of receptor they express on their surface and this family is called a clonotype. The diversity of, so the number of different um, TCR molecules that a healthy individual has is of the order of <clears throat> 10 to the 7, 10 to the 8, and it's gener generated randomly by genetic recombination during the thymus process that I was mentioning before. And the fact that this generation is random implies that some receptors won't be functional and some of them would actually recognize self-peptides too much and generate um, immune responses. So the idea is that thymic selection tries to have this um, under control. So, and then, um, so based on this um, ligand receptor um, 
binding that gives rise to T-cell proliferation um, in the homeostatic um, signaling, I'll build the model. So what is it that we want to do? So we have our T-cell population that is um, distributed over these different types of clonotypes and they are competing for the resources, in this case the antigen-presenting cells that are displaying on their surface self-peptides. So we want to model this with a stochastic description because sometimes the number of cells of a given clonotype is not very large, about 100, sometimes even 50, sometimes 1,000, but you know, not a million copies of each clonotype. So the variable that we'll use to describe this will be x of t, the number of cells of the given clonotype, but if they're competing for resources, as you can imagine, these variables for the different clonotypes will be coupled. So, of course, if you do the full system, that means 10 to the 6, 10 to the 7 different um, variables. So, um, when we first started looking at this, we wanted to start with an analytical, um, something we could do with pencil and paper. So, we thought, well, how can we do something easier? So, what I will show you is the basic of the model, then at the end of the day we want to go to a description which we call mean field in which in some approximation you can decouple this competition and in that case what we need to define are what it's called the transition probabilities. If I know that at time t I have n cells, what is the probability that at a given time I have m cells? And notice that this is per clonotype. And this mathematically is called a birth and death process. So the state um, variables can be 0, 1, 2, 3, the number of cells, with transitions being birth processes, say with rate lambda 2, I go from two cells to three because I receive a signal from an antigen presenting cell and one cell divides. Or if one cell dies, I go from n to n minus 1 with rate mu n because one cell has died. Notice that um, zero um, is here a special state because it's actually called an absorbing state. If um, one cell dies, then I have zero cells, which means for the given clonotype, that clonotype has become extinct. And it's become extinct because if I have zero cells, I can never, I don't believe in spontaneous creation of matter. So the rate from zero to one is zero. So the issue is, can we estimate um, from our model, the average time to extinction. If I start at our initial time with n cells that are coming out of the thymus, what is the average time that I take for that given clonotype to become extinct? So that's what I want to do. So what the little definition, so I will try to spare a lot of the nitty-gritty details, but um, some things cannot be, you know, they need to be written. Um, so the T cells, so the assumption is that in order to divide T-cells need a signal from an antigen-presenting cell to, to go through one round of cell division. So with index I, I will say that's my T-cell clonotype, which specifies the T-cell receptor. And Ni of T would be the number of cells of clonotype I at time T. Mu sub I would be the death rate per single T-cell of the given clonotype. Lambda I is the birth rate. And the idea is that from the model, I will derive expressions um, for mu and for lambda, uh, an antigen presentation profile will be labelled by Q. So if I fix I, the clonotype, QI is the number of APPs, of, of presentation profiles, that can signal to I, 
and that trigger one round of cell division. And if I fix a profile Q, CQ is a set of all the different T cells that can receive a signal to derive from an APPQ. So in pictures, if I have on the left the different antigen presentation profiles and on the right all the different T cell chronotypes, and I look at a given, my, the, my chronotype of interest is the one characterized by receptor I, and let's suppose that um, it's getting signals from those different profiles, or it can get signals from all these different profiles, that would be the set QI. If I look at a given profile and I see, I mean, this is the immunologist telling me uh, what is the um, lag unbinding of the different um, receptors to the different profiles, that would be CQ. So Q can signal to three different chronotypes. So all the cells in that chronotype will um, proliferate if they encounter profile Q, and that's called CQ. And if I put all that together, that's what I have. So, so let's suppose as my immunologist tells me, I have these profiles and I have these different um, T cell families and this is the way they can interact. And um, I define, so given Q, which is a given profile uh, labeled in the picture there, that profile signals to I, but it also signals to two other chronotypes. So the cardinality of the set CQ, again, CQ, remember, is the number of cells, the number of T cells that can receive a signal from profile Q, will be the number of cells in I, because NI, um, because I receive signals from Q, plus the rest. And the rest of the competitors I'm lumping in this NIQ. So what I will be doing is make some assumptions about the structure of this competition to make to, to be able to decouple this competition and go to a one-dimensional, I mean, to a birth and death process. So just to say, it's, um, so the question is, is this immunologically reasonable? So the good news is that for sure the um, interaction between antigen presentation profiles and T cell chronotypes is not one-to-one. -one. So in the context of self-peptides, this is a good approximation, so at least um, it's not that um, we're choosing any particular competition and uh, without any relevance to the immunology. So in order to build a model, what I need to do is fix your chronotype, and you will do this for every chronotype, of course, identify the different profiles that can signal, potentially signal to that set, and then given a Q in the set QI, then identify the competitor. So you can do that in this case for I, um, QI, is made of Q1, Q2, Q3. Q1 can signal to I and one extra chronotype. So notice that all the cells in cyan will be competing for um, the same resources um, in Q1. Q2, for example, doesn't have any competition from the eyes of chronotype I. And Q3, in this case, is shared by I and these two other chronotypes. So the idea is that if I know this competition, um, I will assume that these are signal, um, th this is the signaling structure and competition is just given by how many cells have access to the given um, profile with this um, structure. Is that clear? So with this in mind, um, how do we go into this mean field approximation? So what I've plotted here is the, bl the, blue, the, blue, the black uh, dots are different profiles and the blue box is basically um, the space QI. 
So for the given clonotype, all the black dots there are all the different profiles that can signal to it. And the other um, boxes are different um, clonotypes that share those resources. So I'm going to label all the different um, profiles by competition index. Again, competition as seen from clonotype I, which is the blue clonotype. So in yellow, I have all the competitors, sorry, all the profiles that are being not competed with, so they only signal to I, and I give them competition index R equals zero. In blue, I have all the ones that are being competed with just one clonotype, and in this mean field approximation, the first thing we do is assume that all competitors are the same. So it doesn't matter if, um, if here this one is being shared with the cyan, or that one up there is shared with the other green one. It's just, it's competed with one other clonotype, and I can keep doing this, competition index 2 or competition index 3, and this leads to a natural partition of the set QI by competition index R. So QIR, so I go from QI to QIR, with R being the competition index, is all the APPs that signal to I, the clonotype that I'm looking at, but can provide signals to other clonotypes R, different, different and not I. This is a partition, so QIR is disjoint with QIR prime, if R is different from R prime. And what I will say is, uh, remember I want to estimate the number of competitors, and the number of competitors was written in this form NIQ. Remember NIQ is the number of cells that receive a signal from Q that are not I. So that average number, I'm going to say, well, if Q belongs to QIR, because I've now partitioned in those subsets in a unique way, then there are n different competitors. I'm assuming, and this is again this mean field approximation, that all other clonotypes are about the same size, this average um, clonotype size that I label with average n. So on average, I have r times average n number of cells that are competing with the rest ni. And I can calculate the cardinality of this set, how many APPs are competed for r, by a binomial, distribu um, binomial distribution. So if I do that, this is, uh, so notice of course, um, this is very important. By doing this, notice that all the structure of competition of the possible coupling of my Markov processes through that term, the competition, by doing this, I eliminate all the coupling in my equations and I'm down to our um, one-dimensional birth and death process, which is what I can do with my pencil and paper. And of course, I had to erase a lot. But <laughs> so, how do we model this T-cell chronotype? By a birth and death um, process in which... Uh, we're going to do something very simple for the death. We're going to assume that the death rates are linear in the number of cells. And the birth rate is a bit more complicated. So notice that, remember, when um, contacting an APP, you divide one round. So with one cell, you get two. So you go from one to two, so from n to n plus one. So my lambda n is phi. So I'll, I'll go slowly through through the parameters in the model. So there are four parameters in the model. The first one is the death rate per cell, and that goes into the death rate from state n, mu n. And then there are three other ones. Two I've already um, 
explain to you, which is the average number of T cells per clonotype. And then I have to say what's the signal that comes out of um, an APP, and that's phi. And we're assuming that all APPs have the same strength, which is not about approximation because in the context of self-signaling, the affinities um, are almost within the same range. So phi is a signal rate to divide. And then the other parameter that we need to describe this competition is the average number of competitors of the given clonotype. So with that, notice that, that um, I can explain what the terms are in the... So by doing this um, approximation, you get that equation. So the rate is proportional, as I said, to the signal strength from the APPs. And remember that you have to sum over all the different signals. In this case, they're labeled by the competition index R and the term 1 over R times N average plus N is how many cells receive a signal and that's because they're competing, the signal is shared equally. And nu comes from this binomial distribution, the average number of competitors. So when we got this um, having four parameters, I mean we were happy but at the same time we were horrified to have that infinite sum because we were thinking about extinction. So with this type of rates, for us, the idea of really showing anything analytically uh, seemed to not be possible. But then we went slowly through our theory of birth and death processes and um, it was actually not too um, difficult to show the following. So I'm going to go into the results now. So the results are that for, so again, for this birth and death um, process with an absorbing state at zero and for those um, birth and death rates um, we get the following that extinction takes place with certainty so for any values of the parameters extinction happens with certainty and not only extinction is certain but the times to extinction are finite and can be computed so uh, and in fact for a birth and death process you even get a nice uh, um, form in terms of the lambdas and the mu, the birth and the death rates. But the issue is, well, fine, extinction is there, but you see, we were trying to solve, yes? What does, uh, do you mean, when you say extinction takes place with certainty, is that with probability one? With probability one, right. yes. Yes, with probability one, yes. You said the extinction times are yeah, oh, the, oh the, the, the average extinction times. Average. Yes, 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 the average extinction times. Oh, no, the <laughs> I wish. So, but then we were trying to answer the question, extinction is true for all clonotypes in this approximation, but we were not talking, I mean, we wanted to understand the issue of aging, but we also wanted to solve the crucial question of how is homeostasis maintained. And if you think about homeostasis, extinction is not maintaining your population at, at a constant size. So the question is, for those clones that die um, very late, before extinction takes place, what happens? Do I reach some sort of steady state of some sort? So that's when, in terms of computing the probability of having N cells at a given time, you compute the condition of probability to have N cells at a given time conditioned on not having become extinct. Um, so I can define QN and one can actually show for our process that this limit exists um, and um, 
that's more or less what we started um, to compute. So started to compute the distributions for different parameters and the average times to extinction. So let me tell you what I'm plotting here. So what I'm plotting here is, let's suppose that I start with one cell at my initial time of the given clonotype, and I compute how long it takes on average to become extinct. And this, I'm taking the death rate to set my unit of time. And I'm doing this for two reasons. First of all, because the immunologists still don't agree exactly on how long, what's the average lifetime of an IFT cell. Some people say it's of the order of weeks, and some others say it's of the order of years. And of course, for an aging, <laughs> those two timescales uh, will have very different implications, years versus uh, weeks. So in a way, that's good for us. So and I'm plotting this average time to extinction from one um, as a function of the competition index, nu. So high nu means that your, this particular clonotype competes a lot, low nu um, competes very little, and I've plotted it for two values of the signal strength, 20 and, and 200. So what you can see is that really the value of phi um, only gives you a quantitative chain, but change, but not qualitative. And what you see, of course, is that if the competition is very large, the clone is going to become extinct very quickly. If um, competition, if nu is very small, then um, it will live longer and the, the strength of the signal will determine um, for how long you live. And um, then what we do is instead of changing phi, we'll change average n and I can um, now plot the same thing, expected time to extinction from one cell as a function of the competition index for a different value of average n. And this actually has immunological consequences because um, in fact if you happen to be going through chemotherapy or radiotherapy um, that uh, process actually brings you into a state called lymphopenia in which the number of lymphocytes is very much reduced. So what they see is that people that have had radiotherapy or chemotherapy, and they also do these experiments with mice, they actually have a very fast homeostatic proliferation after the fact. So the idea is that the system realizes that there's very small numbers, they have lots of resources, so they can expand much more than in a healthy person in which basically your resources are much tighter. So the system, I mean the model can reproduce that, so at least it's a check in terms of it's doing what it's supposed to do. If you have, on average, fewer cells, your time to extinctions will actually be um, greater, and you see that. And notice that always at around average competition of one, you have this sharp change in behavior. And it's nice to see that in this regime, the results don't depend on average n. And one can actually, so, I mean, so that you know, in the regime of very little competition or a lot of competition, one can do a lot of things analytically because the infinite sum reduces to something much simpler. So, um, so that's that. Then one can actually compute also in the homeostatic regime before you've reached extinction, what is the um, average number of cells of the given T cell chronotype. So that can be computed and again what you see, so this is average number of cells as a function of the competition index, lots of competition, um, you're almost at the brink of extinction, very low cell counts, and if you go um, to very small values of competition, then you have um, a greater number of cells, and 
if I plot this as a function changing the average value of n, then you see exactly what I said, that um, you actually have more proliferation if you're in lymphopenic conditions, if your average pool is of a smaller size. So something that I just wanted to mention, if, um, if it's of interest for anybody, but I didn't want to go into a lot of detailed calculations, something that um, I've always sort of been asking myself is, well, there's deterministic modeling, there's stochastic modeling, um, and then they have, they do, they do different things, and you need one sometimes, and you need the other at other times. So we had done a um, stochastic model, but then other people had been working with um, deterministic models. So Van Kampen um, gives a very nice way in which you do something slightly better, which is from a stochastic process, you can go um, by a change of variables um, from, I mean, for any um, Markov process, not necessarily birth and death process, you can obtain a deterministic equation and a linear Fokker Planck equation for the fluctuations. So you go from your variable n to a deterministic variable x and fluctuations c. And in that case, what one can do is, of course, solve the determinant. I've done this, actually, um, these equations are only true for the case of very little competition because the lambda and the mu's were much simpler so that you could have a flavor. So what you can do in that case is solve the steady states and find the stability or instability of the steady states of the deterministic system and then evaluate the fluctuations about that system. And then, of course, um, by looking at the... Um, at the variance divided by the uh, square root, sorry, the, uh, the square root of the variance divided by the average value of the fluctuations gets an idea of how important or not are the fluctuations. And of course, what you find is that if you are very close to extinction, it's going to be a bad approximation. But if you're far from extinction, then this can give you um, an easy way to analyze um, things when the stochastic simulations are a bit um, too complicated. And I'm saying this uh, because of what follows. So I've been telling you about the mean field approximation, but which is exactly the situation on the left panel. If from your chronotype point of view, you're competing with lots, but you're not competing so that if um, one of your competitors dies, that has a significant impact on your uh, behavior, then you can do a mean field approximation as I've described. But what happens if two chronotypes overlap significantly. So in that case, the time evolution of the one really affects the other chronotype. And um, in that case, you really need to consider a bivariate continuous time Markov process. So we started to do that, but of course, um, getting um, analytic estimates of the average time to extinction and of the limiting conditional distribution becomes a bit more hairy. But doing um, this, but now for two populations, so now you have a Fokker-Planck equation for fluctuations in one population and the other is actually analytically tractable. And you know, I almost, um, you know, th these type of things um, make you very happy when you, know, you write your code for the exact simulations, but I, I don't know, I'm the type of person that I have to sit with my pencil and paper. So, um, and that we've done, in fact, I'm going to show you um, um, a code that solves the exact model with no approximations whatsoever, but at least for the bivariate case, we wanted to check if I have the situation that I showed in the left panel and I run my um, exact simulations, then every 
any clone behaves just like that. There's a transient and then immediately equilibrates and all the clones are doing exactly that. But if I have two clones that are different from the rest and the two clones um, compete a lot for, I mean, compete a lot for the same resources, what you see is exactly that all the population behaves like it used to do in the mean field approximation, but those two clones that compete um, a lot for the same resources actually compete so much that they go into what it's called um, competitive exclusion and in fact one will drive the other to extinction um, a little bit like um, in ecology. So that's something that um, it's work in progress with the bivariate. Um, and now what I'm going to show you is a visualization of the um, exact model of the simulation in which I'm taking 500 um, antigen presentation profiles, 100 different chronotypes, the initial clonal sizes, every clone starts with 50 cells, and then the probability that an APP stimulates a given T-cell chronotype is 0.05. I've set the death rate to be 0.75 and the stimulation rate just to be um, gamma equals 1. And if I do this swiftly, should be here. So, if this, are these real numbers? Uh, so let me let me just. So real numbers. So let me tell you, real numbers just about. Okay, of course, a bit scaled down, but um, the ratios of so you have one to ten. So one APC per T cell in the lymph node. The clonal sizes um, can be between 10 and 1,000. So, um, and then this probability, um, this, this is a number that we cannot check directly because in principle, there's no library that tells you for all the different T, 10 to the 7 different chronotypes and for all the different profiles. But we know for sure that it will not be, for sure it's not all to all and not one to one. It, so, but, um, but I don't think that P matters too much after all. I think it's more the competition, much more than the, the, the average probability. And then the death rate, again, that's only set in the time scale because it can be, I mean, that's why I didn't write units. It could be weeks or it could be years. So in fact, I mean, I have to say that when we did this, um, it was good that the referee said, well, find you for scale with a death um, rate. But is extinction going to be noticeable if you live for, say, 80 years? So we did that um, in, in, in the paper, do the calculation for weeks and for years, and sure, if you do it for weeks, then you, you, you will notice that you will become, you know, you'll get um, coronal um, depletion uh, before you die, I mean, if you, unless you die at 30, right? And then, so they're not, I mean, they're not coming out from from some data, but they're reasonable. For sure, the first three, and um, yeah. Yes, so I go to where, so I'll explain exactly what I'm doing. So it's, this is a Gillespie algorithm based on, on what I was telling you, the, those numbers. So on the lower panel, that first histogram on the left is what we call the coverage histogram, which is how many chronotypes are getting a signal per APP. Um, the right histogram is what is this competition, average competition index um, for the different chronotypes. The top panel is as a function of time, how many survivor, 
surviving clones you have. I started with 100 so far, nobody still has um, become extinct. And then I also have the mean number of cells um, per clonotype, and I'm in red, I'm plotting the total number of cells. So notice that slow, and the little histogram is basically telling you the clonal sizes, the blue histogram on the right. It's telling you the clonal sizes as a function of time. So they all started at size 50, and very quickly, because you're, so now you, you're having extinction, so you're having a big drop. So before extinction kicks in, you have a lot of death without extinction. Then as soon as you start having extinction, you have a bit of recovery, because you're competing for almost the same resources, but um, there's fewer clones. And as you can see, it's nice to see this shift which, of course, the ones that compete the most will become extinct, and then on average you have less competitors, so you can see that the average um, competition index goes down, and also the number of um, chronotypes that signal to a given um, APP changes, and you're not seeing, but I could, we can also output, and I mean this is something that we need to be doing, we're still sort of developing all these things, is, um, as you have here, we can output, of course you can output more, which clone died, when it died, what was the... And, and notice that all this, um, this competition index is not fixed, as in the mean field approximation. It's basically computed each instant in time. So um, you can get statistics about what's the distribution, when they die, what, how, what was the phi, what was the average competition index. So that could be um, interesting to the immunologists. So, I mean, we thought that, um, I mean, not only it's good to have the exact model, because as you see, even though the distribution on, in blue is changing a lot, every time you still have this almost constant, you'll see it will take a little bit um, of time to equilibrate, but you see the average number, the total number of cells is not fluctuating a lot, which would be the size of your T-cell pool, the average um, number of cells is also not changing a lot. It's uh, oscillating about 12. But the distribution of the different clonal sizes is actually changing a lot. So in terms of your repertoire coverage, that is quite important because if you happen to be infected, I mean, if, if we believe, let's suppose that we believe this is telling you what's happening um, in your body, if you happen to be infected with a certain pathogen, when the given clone that can respond to that pathogen happens to be in low numbers, even though you're still in this homeostatic balance, that's not probably very good. So, so these are the types of things that um, we're doing. And then, uh, I mean, unless you want to see this for longer, but uh, I'm sure you've seen enough. But I mean, I think it's nice to see. So we've actually did this um, because particularly if you're talking to immunologists, um, even if you show them the arrows, uh, they, for sure, the equations don't mean a lot. And then this, for them, makes much more sense. Um, so, and then, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to do these things. So I'll finish by um, basically going over what I've done. So basically, based on immunological evidence, we build the model, which has four parameters, but the results are robust, don't depend on any fine-tuning. We can show with probability one that extinction uh, <laughs> is certain, calculate the expected extinction times, and of course um, the clones that have, that have more competitors have a shorter lifespan. So I mean something I haven't said to here, this um, 
it's quite important in terms of what happens to the immune repertoire as a whole. When the cells come out of the thymus, we don't know what their competition index is. I mean, I wish I could, I'm trying to nail down a few immunologists to do some of these experiments where you can actually measure diversity, um, and, uh, but that's still not there. But the question is, no matter what the initial distribution is, for sure the ones that compete a lot will die very quickly. And then you go into what the minimal recognition, in the sense minimal recognition commonality, where there's um, less overlap, drives this diverse T cell repertoire. It's, not, it's very cost effective to maintain this diversity, and if, and if there's too much overlap, then it doesn't make sense because you're not protecting anymore. Um, so, and it's also bad to have holes, so you don't want to overlap too much and not have um, also too many holes. We can um, compute the limiting conditional probability distribution, which gives you an idea of this homeostatic control of the population. And then, um, as I've said, in low numbers of cells on average, we get this qualitative explanation of lymphopenia where you see more um, proliferation. And work in progress is that here we've assumed that at your initial time, your thymic export gives whatever it is, but then um, you forget about it. But in reality, the thymus keeps outputting new cells continuously. So if you include that, for sure, you wouldn't have guaranteed extinction because the clone might die out, but the thymus can export a new cell, I mean a cell from that um, specificity. Something that I would like to do, and this is maybe back to the question that um, Wilhelm asked about what numbers can be immunologically um, derived. So the competition index could be computed from scratch based on some um, competition probabilities. And notice that in the mean filter approximation, n is an external parameter. It needs to be computed really self-consistently and at least the numerical simulations, as you can see, tell you that if you're doing even the right thing, um, the system equilibrates and um, you, the mean filter approximation doesn't really do such a bad job for how simple it is. And then uh, we're now focusing a lot on the bivariate competition process and to get an analytical handle on things. And by that, we're using the large N approximation. So if you're interested in experimental or theoretical immunology, um, BBSRC has funded our network. So uh, in fact, we were very happy to have Ken give um, a number of lectures to our students. And in fact, two people from here came, so that was very nice. Um, I hope they thought it was <laughs> nice. Maybe I'm giving a very biased perspective. So if you have any questions, uh, just talk to me, and then ask them, right? <laughs> and I would like to thank Ken, of course, and Ugo van den Berg, who's been working with me and has taught me a lot of immunology. Uh, my PhD student, Emily Sturk, um, my collaborator, Grant Leith, and Damien Clancy, for a lot of um, good knowledge on um, conditional and limiting uh, probability distributions and of course the audience. And um, thank you very much for your... Does anybody have any questions? Anybody want to give Carmen a hard time? Or are you going to leave it to me? Ah, uh, Rick. I have a muffin if I need more energy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so does this mean that uh, we should all take a sample of our lymph nodes and freeze it for later re-injection? Well, well, I mean, in a way, yes. I mean, this is stem cell therapy is exactly doing that. Because the stem cells have the potential to give new T cells, new B cells. A sample of the distribu current distribution of our T cell population. Freeze it and then 
Yeah, the only question is that right now you cannot convince a lot of immunologists to, to say what's your diversity, but maybe in 10 years from now I've convinced them. <laughs> so, no, I mean, I think, um, I think it's, it's slowly, people are slowly realizing that, yes, your diversity um, is very important. And um, believe it or not, there's a group of immunologists at Norwich, at the Institute of Food Research. And they actually, they do gut immunology, which is sort of very different. But of course, uh, through your intestines and your stomach, right, you're having all these foreign things going to, and you still tolerate. But it turns out that the development of your immune system depends a lot on the early foods you had as a newborn. Because, I mean, you know the issue of having commensal bacteria. So there's apparently quite a feedback between the bacteria and the pressure they can put into some of the T cells. So, and, and how tolerant they can be. And so, so the question of, again, you know, the egg and the, what is that, the egg and the chicken, yeah? What comes first? So, so yes, it's um, depending on which bacteria you're exposed to, then, uh, so, Are there any other questions? Mark, right down the back. Well, that's also, so again, they, they seem to be actually shorter than these, but again, that's a bit, there's not a magic number, but I would say uh, some of them can live up for, for years, but again, not. A vaccination wouldn't work if it did. Yeah, you need, yeah, you need your boosters. You had this QN, uh, QN Basi, yes. stationary distribution or conditional uh, distribution. Is there any hope of computing it, getting some analytical handle on yes. this? Yes, oh, yeah, yeah. So, having said that, and in fact, um, I should mention the name of a very nice, uh, I don't know if he calls himself a probabilist, a very nice work he's done, um, Ingemar Nassel in, in Sweden. So, he has. So, um, I mean, I'll go back to, um, to where it was. There. So, the cues, the cues themselves satisfy exactly the same Kolmogorov equations as the P's, but with a non-linear term. Linked to the fact that Qn is Pn divided by 1 minus P0, because 1 minus P0 is the probability of not uh, dying out. So, um, if extinction times are very long, you can neglect, basically if extinctions are much longer than the average time to die per cell, you can neglect the non-linear term and in that case you can do analytical approximations. So in our case, even though we have very ugly lambdas, um, now that you've asked me, if competition is very little, in that sum, you so nu will be very small, so you can approximate by just taking the first term r equals zero, and then you get a very simple expression that lambda is just a constant for any n, lambda n is a constant, and if you have a lot of competition, you can immediately see that that thing in the, um, with the e to the minus nu inside is the average for a Poisson distribution variable of one over x times average n plus n, and you can approximate that. So in those two limits, we've managed to do analytical approximations of the cues, and I mean, I didn't show it today, but you have comparisons. So we've done the following, compare these two approximations. Um, so there's 
two approximations you can do, the one where you get rid of the nonlinear term um, by assuming that distinction times are very long. The other one is called, you have the approximation in which you have one immortal individual. So you delete state zero and you shift all the death rates so that um, state one is immortal. And, you can, and that's a good approximation actually if extinction times are short, except that this is only a conjecture. And the other approximation you can do is from the large n expansion that I had here, whatever, yeah, there. From, from, from this distribution of the fluctuations, you can compute back the, the Q. So, so in the different regimes, of course, this would be a bad approximation if extinction um, happens too quickly, but then you have the other one. So yes, it, it's nice to have. The only problem is that when you go to a, to a bivariate, then it starts becoming, um, and I should mention here, now that you're saying, because I know you know Kevin Barrage, chef, has actually been doing the simulations of the exact, sorry, not, not the exact, the bivariate. So in the same way as I said here, this little competition, in the approximation when there's little competition, but you have two chronotypes that compete a lot for the same resources. So there's a little competition with the background, but a lot of competition between two. He's been doing, he's been looking at the um, distribution, the conditional distribution in that case with all these methods that I was, yeah, so. But analytically, the only thing you could do is um, compute this. Because, the, I mean, this Fokker-Planck equation it has s a standard solution, so, yeah. Okay, so we can have a technical chat after all. I'd like to thank uh, Carmen one more time to visit. She's, she's here for the rest of the afternoon, so if anyone hasn't had an opportunity to speak to her and wishes to, please feel free to come and uh, trouble her. Okay. <laughs> thank you.